You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. So over the last few weeks, except with the exception of last week, um, we, we've been talking about our church, and we've been talking about what we're about and where we're going. This usually would be a sermon series I would do at the first of the year, but uh, it was just too pressing. I needed to, needed to uh, get this out now and get us ready for the first of the year and what the next 2022, 2025, 2030 is going to look like as a church family. The book of Hebrews is a powerful book in that what it does is it helps bridge from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. As a matter of fact, without the book of Hebrews, it would be very difficult for us to kind of wrap our mind around what was happening in the Old Testament sacrificial system and how Jesus not only fulfilled it, but opened something to us that quite frankly we didn't deserve. So I want to start out this morning by looking at the text. Look at Hebrews 10. We'll pick it up in verse 19. And we're going to read these couple of paragraphs, and we're going to take a look at this several verses, actually, in chapter 10. So verse 19 says, therefore, now, pause here. This is bad English, but I'm going to do it anyway. Anytime you see therefore in the text, we got to ask the question, what is it there for? And the reason it's there is because it's connecting us to the paragraphs before, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, we pause this morning, we say thank you for your kindness and mercy and grace, and we say thank you for all those all over the globe right now that are serving in very dangerous places. They're serving on ships, and they're serving in foreign lands, and they're serving in all kinds of different places, all for the sake of our freedom. Father, it is a great privilege to be able to stand in this place, to be able to read your word out loud, to be able to pray together corporately, to be able to gather corporately. When we know that the majority of the world does not have the privileges that we have, and the reason we have them is because of men and women who gave of themselves to protect it. So, Father, we never want to take it for granted. So we say thank you to you and thank you to all of those, Father, who have served. Father, we thank you for your word. It is perfect and pure in every way. Guide us in it this morning. And so, Father, we want to hear your voice today because, Father, you have something to say to each of us. So, Father, we clear all the clutter out of our hearts and minds right now, all the things that we've dealt with this past week, and we're not going to worry about tomorrow. We're not going to be frustrated about what happened yesterday. But right now in this moment, we want to hear from you. So Lord, speak. We are listening. 
We praise your name. We thank you for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith that made it possible for us to enter into your presence. We ask all this in his name. Amen. As I've told you before, I have the privilege of uh, teaching at the Bible College up in Fayetteville. And you have the opportunity to take classes there. And if you don't want to go through a degree program, you don't want to get a two-year degree or four-year degree or work on a master's degree, there's another option. You can take a class, any class you want, and you can audit that class. Now, audit is just a fancy word that just simply means that you can take the class, sign up for it. There is a process that you have to go through. And if you want to sit in a New Testament survey class or you want to sit in a class that talks about discipleship, you can actually go to that class. You can be a student in that class. But the big difference between you and the student who is pursuing some degree is that as your professor, I'm not going to require you to do any of the assignments, no research papers, no quizzes, no midterm, no final exam. So basically, you don't even have to read the textbook. You can just come to class, hear the lectures, uh, let me put you to sleep in a pretty quick fashion, and, and then you, you really don't have to do any of the, of the homework assignments at all. You can if you like, but I, I, don't, I don't require it. I can't require it for a student who's auditing the course. So, so let's imagine that, that I take two students out of that New Testament class. And let's say we're going to put them on the stage. I've got one student who's working on a bachelor's degree. So that student has to do every assignment, all the, the research papers. And, and if, you're, if you're at CCBS, you've probably heard the rumor that that's going around up there. And it's a lie, trust me, that I'm a tough professor. I don't know how that got started. But people keep talking about, oh, you don't want to take his class. I don't know what that's all about. But I do have high expectations for my students. So for the student that's in a degree program, that student's got to do my research papers, the quizzes, the final, the midterm, and everything that's part of the class because that, class, that student's trying to earn a grade. And trust me when I tell you, they've got to earn that grade. Okay, I'm not going to hand them a grade. They've got to earn it. Now, the other student doesn't have to do any of that. Now, they're sitting in the boat. Both of them are sitting in the class. So let's, let's quiz them and let's see how much they've learned. What do you want to bet? What do you want to bet that the student who's got the requirements and has to do the work, what do you want to bet they learn more of what's going on in the class than the audit student does? I would dare say to you that that is the case. Now, that's not to say that the audit, stu audit student is not going to pick up some things. Absolutely. It's not to say that that student's not there to learn, but the student that's held accountable, the student that has expectations, the student that has to follow those expectations by submitting work and doing tests to see if they're actually getting the content, that's the student that's going to get the most out of the class. Now, why is that? Well, here's a concept I want you to, to kind of consider. That which requires nothing from you you gain nothing from it. In other words, if there is no expectation, if it's just handed to you free, there's really not a lot of incentive. If it's handed to you and you're not expected to do anything, there's no expectations to, to follow through, you're not going to glean as much out of it, if anything, than the one who has expectations, has a goal, has something that they're being encouraged and not only encouraged, but in sometimes as a professor, I'm having to push them towards that goal. Joe and Susan, by the way, these are made-up names. If your name is Joe or Susan, this has nothing to do with you. Joe and Susan's going to join a church. Joe and Susan has heard about a church that's got a great kids program or a great student ministry or a great worship team, and, and they want to go to that church. And so they go a few weeks, and, and wow, they, they just want to put down roots there. They, they want to join that church. So at the end of the service, the pastor says, hey, if anybody wants to join the church, just come on down. 
So Joe and Susan walk down, they come to the front of the church, and the pastor asks them while the music's playing, you know, we're in the 50th verse of Just As I Am. That's a joke. We're, we're in the 50th verse of Just As I Am. The pastor's talking to Joe and Susan, why are you coming forward today? Well, we want to join the church. Great. He doesn't ask them if they've been born again. In some cases, not even ask if they've been baptized. So when the 50th verse of Just As I Am is over, the pastor looks at the congregation and says, great, let me introduce you to Joe and Susan today. They've come forward to join our church. And what do you guys think? Oh, yeah, that's great. So they join the church. And the pastor never really tells Joe and Susan, hey, here's what you can expect from our church. And here's what's expected of you to be part of this fellowship. Hey, you know, you kind of need to be a follower of Jesus. That kind of should have happened before that all took place at the front of the church. But nonetheless, let's assume that they are followers of Jesus. There are some expectations about what it means to be part of a local body of of believers. And and here's what those are. And and here's what you can expect from your pastor. And here's what we expect of you to be part of this fellowship. That conversation never happens. You see where I'm going here. Just as much as that audit student is not going to really grow because there's really no expectations other than just to kind of show up, the same thing applies in a local church. If the only expectation that a church has upon you is just to show up every now and then, there's not going to be a lot of growth. There's not going to be a lot of maturing in Christ. And quite frankly, the Scripture is pretty clear that to be part of a local fellowship, there's expectations, not only just on the leadership and the body itself, but on those who are part of that fellowship. That which requires nothing of you is going to have no gain in your life, no effect in your life. The greatest growth opportunities in your life, look back across your life, the greatest opportunities of growth in your life are connected to some pretty hard stuff you had to go through. Am I wrong on that? I'm not. Because it's the same for my life. As I look back across my life, those places where I was working on a a degree and and those professors were holding me accountable, that's the places that I grew. And not only in that school setting, but in my life as I've walked with Jesus, ever since I was 16, tried to walk with him as close as I could. It's during those times where things were hard that I learned the most and grew the most. The writer of Hebrews is going to point our attention to the fact that The nation of Israel was called to be together, that God structured their entire life, that they would do life together as a community of faith. Listen, folks, this church, High Park, we're not selling you a product. We're not not here to sell you something. And you're not a consumer. High Park Baptist Church is a family of Jesus followers that is on mission together. So we're not just getting together because, well, we have a nice building, we want you to see this building. We're, we're not here because we have a nice building and a nice complex. Jesus is not coming back for bricks and mortar. The Church of Jesus Christ, Hyde Park Baptist Church, is a family of Jesus followers. And I will tell you, there's some crazy Jesus followers in this place. I love them to death. And those crazy Jesus followers have decided to come together at this location to worship, to be equipped, to be sent out on mission together. That's that's who we are. So to be part of this fellowship, well, means there's some expectations. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. 
But what this book does is it helps us to, to be able to reconcile what's happening in the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, can we just agree that the Old Testament, man, it's kind of bloody back there, right? I mean, there's a lot of bloodshed going on in that book. Take the book of Leviticus. You probably tried to read through the Bible in a year, and you, you know, you're clicking along pretty good in Genesis and Exodus, and next thing you know, you hit Leviticus there, and you're like, what in the world? We're talking about sacrificing oxen and goats and birds, and you start checking out. It's like, what in the world is this all about? The book of Hebrews helps us to understand what was happening there and what it was all pointing to. And what we see in the Old Testament are these times where God commanded, actually written as part of their law, that they would gather together on certain particular festivals and what they would consider high days. So for example, the Lord would command them that they would observe the high day of Passover. And the whole, high, the whole purpose of gathering for Passover was to look back and to remember what God did in that exodus out of Egypt. He, he would tell them that they would, that they would need to get together for the Feast of Tabernacles, for the Feast of Pentecost, for the Feast of First Fruits. And each of these festivals had as their goal to gather the nation together for corporate worship that they were not to do and walk with God and practice their faith in isolation, but together. So it was so important to God that he, that he put it in the law. You must do this. COVID-19 brought something upon the church that none of us had experienced. Some of you are old enough to, to remember some of the stuff way back in the day with other pandemics, but for most of us in this room and those watching online, COVID-19 brought something that I had never seen or dealt with before, and that is, how is the church supposed to gather? When we have political machines telling us that we're not supposed to even to the degree of shutting down an entire state. I will tell you that, that the weekend of March 16th, 2020, and the two to three weeks after that was three of the hardest weeks of my life as being a, a vocational minister and pastor. And you'd have to think, well, wait a minute, that, that was worse than the hurricanes? Yes. Yes, it was. And, I, and maybe I've had some conversations with you, and, and we've talked about this, and you've heard me say this, so I'll say it to all of you, that if I had my preference, if I could choose like the next disaster, I would not choose a pandemic. Now, I don't, now hear me, I, you guys lost a lot. Some of you lost your home not once but twice. You lost everything you had. So I, don't hear me saying that, oh, I prefer, you know, mayhem and destruction of all your per personal property. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that as a ministry and as a church, navigating a hurricane is a whole lot better than navigating a pandemic, and here's why. I can look on a radar map, and I can see a hurricane. It's swirling out in the ocean. I've got all these weather prophets telling me that it's going to come across on the land at some point. Sometimes they're wrong, sometimes they're right, but at least there's something I can see. And then that thing begins to come in, and we, what do we do? We experience the wind and the rain. But we all know while we're in the middle of that hurricane, whether it was Matthew or Florence, we all knew this. At some point, it's going to do what? Move on. And yes, we're going to bind together, and yes, we're going we're gonna to do what we need to do. We're going to climb under people's houses, and we're going to tear out the stuff, and we're going to find the resources. We're going to get to work. But here's what we know about a hurricane. It comes, it stays, and then what does it do? It goes. This pandemic, I don't even know when it began. I don't know if I'm in the middle of it or near the end, and I have no idea what it's going to look like when it's over. It's like nailing jello to the wall. I have no idea. 
It's been one of the hardest things I've tried to navigate. As a church leadership, we have tried our very best to keep you guys safe, to do this the right way, but to also let you have a choice. You're adults to choose what's best for you and for your family. I am thankful that we have the technology that bridged the gap. But what we're going to see today is the value of being together, personally together. And the writer of Hebrews is going to build this off of the idea that we've been given incredible privileges. And it's out of those privileges that we've been given that our response to that as followers of Jesus is spelled out right here in, in chapter 10. So to get our arms around this, we need to back up to verse 1. So, so back up, chapter 10, verse 1, and let's start there. This is the writer of Hebrews. Again, we don't know who wrote this book. And he says in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the writer of Hebrews says this. He, he looks back into the Old Testament system. And that system of a, of a priesthood, a temple, blood sacrifices, animals being slaughtered, blood being offered, uh, the, the bodies of these animals being burned, all kinds of things happening back there. And, and here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says that all of that that was required in the law was just a shadow of something better that's coming. Now, now what the writer of Hebrews is going to do, because he's writing after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and after the church has started, he's looking back and he's saying, you know what that great thing was, that, that better thing that came? It was Jesus. That all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to one great, perfect sacrifice who would come. And notice what he says. He says here that all of those animal sacrifices could not make those people perfect. What does that mean? Well, as the writer of Hebrews continues, let's, let's continue on just a little bit. He says, otherwise they would have not ceased to offer them since the worshipers having been once clean would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The, the idea is, is that he's saying that if those sacrifices could have removed their sins, could have made them perfect, could have reconciled them or made them close to God, then there wouldn't have been any need for them to continually keep offering all these animals. I mean, we read in the Old Testament where there were times of worship where there would be thousands of animals sacrificed in one event, one festival where they're worshiping and honoring God. The historians tell us that at the temple, there was a trough that was built that where they would cut the throats of the animals. I know this is graphic, so I'm going to try to keep it on the down low as much as possible, but there would be a trough that would, would carry the blood, that there were so many animals being sacrificed. He says, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then what was the point? We have a holy God who has set apart a group of people, the descendants of Abraham, and, and God is blessing them and working with them. So, so what is the problem here? If, if they're sacrificing all the animals, but yet God is distant, then what is this accomplishing? Here's what it's accomplishing. It's allowing God to have participation in their life, even though they are sinful people. It's called atonement, and the word atonement means to cover. It never removed the sins. It just covered them. So God could commune with his people, 
But all of those sacrifices were pointing towards a greater sacrifice. And here's where he talks about it, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he says, sacrifices, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, what does he mean? So what he's talking about is Jesus understood, do fully well, that he came to this world and, and, and took on a robe of flesh, a body, that that body was given by the will of God for a singular purpose, and that body was to be sacrificed on a cross, Jews, Romans, conspiring together not realizing that they were doing the very will of God. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that what Jesus did in that body of flesh, God in the flesh, he comes, he lives among us, he lives a perfect life, didn't sin in any deed or any word or any thought, and then Jesus offers that body, why? To get rid of all of the animal sacrifices that they'd all been pointing to this sacrifice and to do the will of God. In other words, Jesus being absolute perfection, lays down his life once and for all, for all time. Look what he says here in verse 10. And by, the, by that will, we have been sanctified. Sanctified means we've been set apart. We've been cleansed, cleansed. We've been made holy, set apart. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And here it is, once for all. Why is it that when we come together, I don't, bring a goat in here and we sacrifice them. Thank the Lord we don't have to do that. Why is that? Why is it that that's not happening anywhere, at least within our faith? It's because it's not required anymore. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the cosmos, the Bible says that, that he was going to lay down his life as a perfect sacrifice but one other thing you need to know is, as you read on down, look at verse 11. It says, and then the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool at his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, the writer of Hebrews draws our attention to the reality that there will never need to be another sacrifice. Your sacrifice, if you were to sacrifice your life, it's not enough and it doesn't need to happen because Jesus has already done that on your behalf. In the Old Testament system, and what the author of Hebrews is talking about, is that once a year, the high priest would be able to enter into this most holy place. Now let me let me describe all that that means. So in the temple, you had two compartments in that temple. The first compartment that you walked into was called the holy place. And inside that room, there were certain artifacts that were placed there exactly the way God told them to. And all of them were elements of worship and prayer. But between that room and the next room, the next room was called the most holy place. And between the front room and the back room, especially in the later temple, there was a curtain, a veil, and now remember, this ceiling height was probably about as high as this ceiling is, maybe a little bit higher. 
And between the most holy place and the holy place, there was a curtain. That curtain was 18 inches thick. And on the other side of that curtain, inside the most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a golden box, very ornate. Had cherubim, angels sitting on top of it, built into the lid of this this great artifact. The top of that lid was called the mercy seat. And it was in that place, behind that curtain, is where God's presence would dwell continually. Now the high priest in the line of Aaron was the only one who could go behind that curtain. And he could only go there once a year. And it was on the 10th month, I think it was the 10th month, 7th day, or was it, yeah, seventh, the 10th day, 7th month of the Hebrew calendar. Only on that day. Now before he could go in there, he had to take a bath, but not just any bath. Exactly the way the law described it. And it's described in detail how he was supposed to do this. And then after he took the bath, he had to put on some very special clothes. And only those clothes. And then before he could go back into that most holy place, he would have to kill an oxen on behalf of him and his family as a sin offering. Get this, the high priest also sinned. And he had to make an atonement or or a blood sacrifice to cover the sins of himself and his own family. So after he would kill this ox, and again, in a very specific fashion, he would take that blood, and then finally he could walk behind that curtain only once a year, and he would walk behind that veil, and behind that veil is the very presence of God. The priest is standing in the very presence of God, and he walks up, and he sprinkles the blood on top of that mercy seat. If he didn't take the bath, if he didn't wear the right clothes, if he he sacrificed the wrong animal in the wrong way, guess what happens when he walked behind that curtain? Dead on the scene. Talk about nerves. Talk about anxiety. So he sprinkles that blood on top of the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and then he walks back out. So what he's just done is he's offered a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, an atonement, a covering for his sins and the sins of his family. Now he's ready to take the next step. When he comes back out, they're going to select two goats. And they're going to, they're going to uh, basically cast lots to figure out which goat's going to perform which duty. One of those goats would be chosen to be the sacrifice. And they would basically cut, well, I'm not going to get too deep because we got kids in here, but just to say that they would take the life of that goat. That blood would then be carried back into the most holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat, and that blood was to, to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. He would come back out, and then he would go to the other goat, and he would lay his hands on the head of that goat, and he would pray to God, asking forgiveness and and, and basically stating the sins of the nation. And the sins were, were symbolically transferred from the nation to this particular goat. And then there would be one person chosen who would take the goat, take it outside the city, out in the wilderness, and it would be set free. Can I just say again, thank God for the new covenant? Because guys, I can't even keep my week straight the way it is now. I can't imagine even coming close to any of this. But anywhere along the journey, you get it wrong, God takes you out. What he's saying, and what God is saying to the nation of Israel, well, not just the nation of Israel, what he's saying to to the world is do not come near me. 
Now, it's not because God hated or despised his prized creation. No, it's exactly the opposite. God loved humanity. It was his prized masterpiece of all creation. But humanity had to understand that, that God is holy and righteous and perfect, and we are sinful and broken and disobedient and evil to the core. Jeremiah says, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know the depths of it? And God is reminding all of humanity in all of those practices, don't you dare walk into my presence. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, you'll find times where there's one instance where the Ark of the Covenant is being transferred. It's on a cart. It's about to fall off. This one guy reaches out, touches it. You know what happened to him? He fell dead. God is saying there is separation between you and I. And you've got nothing in you, nothing that can bridge that gap. So God in his good grace says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have some communion with you, but it's only by my rules. And in my rules, you sacrifice the animals, you take the bath, you put on the clothes, you come in here once a year, and if you don't do it right, then I'm going to take you out. Because the world needs to know that I am not a God to be messed with, that I'm to be taken seriously. The writer of Hebrews helps us to see this separation, but what he also helps us to see is what Jesus has done on our behalf. Now we're ready to get into verse 19. Listen to verse 19. This will blow your mind. Therefore, now remember, therefore it connects us back to all we just talked about. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, we got we to wrestle with that just a moment. We got we to gotta pause here for just a moment. I just told you that you, you just can't walk into the presence of God. You, you, just can't, you just can't have it your way. This is not McDonald's, okay? It's a holy God. He's to be respected, revered, and yes, feared. But now the writer of Hebrews says, now brothers, listen. Now when he says brothers, he's saying those of you who've put your faith in Jesus, let, let me tell you what we've got. We have confidence to enter into the very place that we just talked about you can't enter. For 1,500 years, God said to the world, don't enter. For 1,500 years in the Old Testament system, God said the veil is closed. Do not walk on the other side. For 1,500 years, God says you cannot come in here. Your righteousness is filthy rags. You are broken. You cannot communicate with me. You can't hang out with me. You can't be near me and live and survive it. But now, the writer of Hebrews says, now we have confidence to enter that very holy place. Why? Not by your blood, not by the blood of an animal, but by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's just let that settle in for just a moment here. Because I really want you to get the privilege that we have. Because I think sometimes we forget it. When you put your faith in Jesus, what you were saying in that moment is, is I believe that Jesus died on that cross for me. His death, sufficient on that cross. When you put your faith, when you understood it all or not, you said in that moment when you put faith in Jesus that it's not an animal sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of the Son who makes me right with God. And what God says to us after 1,500 years of saying no, God says, come on in. 
Come on in, sit down with me. I want to talk with you. I want to, I want to hear about your life. I want to hear about your day. Even the stuff that you don't even think is important. Come in, sit down. Let's talk. Let's have a relationship. Let's walk together. The holy God of the universe who says, stay away, now says, come on in. Jesus is dying on a cross in Matthew's account. And Jesus is hanging there. He's, a, he's just about at the moment of death. Matthew's account tells us there was an earthquake that just shook the earth. It was so crazy and violent and insane at that moment that only Matthew's account tells us that there were graves that busted open and people who'd been dead for years get up and walk out and go back and knock on the doors of their families' homes. It's crazy because of the power vested in that moment. But over at the temple, now remember, Jesus was taken outside the city Hill Golgotha, inside the city at the highest point is that temple that I was telling you about. And inside that temple, there's a holy place and a most holy place. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. And that 18-inch thick vinyl, or that, that woven knitted veil that hung between those two places. As Jesus is dying and the earth is shaking, you know what happens? God takes his hands and he grabs that 18-inch veil and he rips it, not from the bottom up. No, if it was from the bottom up, somebody says, well, you know, somebody did that. No, 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 no. As high as this ceiling, maybe higher, God takes it, grabs it, rips it in two, opening up the most holy place to the holy place. You know what God was saying in that moment? Come on in. Come on in. It's not based off your righteousness. We're still broken people. But my son has done all that is needed. And you put your faith in him, and now you and I can walk together in love. You and I can walk together, reconcile. You and I can find your purpose. You and I can live a life that is incredible that you can't even begin to imagine. That's what we've been given. You see, Jesus, Jesus, in all of his perfection, in all of his beauty, he became that complete atonement for us. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 4, and in chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus is our high priest. He, he performed the functions on our behalf. But not only was Jesus the high priest, but Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That in the Godhead Trinity, in eternity past, it was already known and accepted that Jesus would become that perfect blood sacrifice. Revelation 13, 8 tells us that. But not only that, but Jesus is also our scapegoat. That Jesus was taken outside the city to a place called the place of the skull. And there he was crucified. And there Jesus and Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says this, he who knew no sin, what? Became sin for us. Your sin transferred to the Son of God, the high priest, the scapegoat, the perfect lamb, sacrificed before the foundation of the world. Jesus is our complete atonement. And what he did in that moment brought us into a right relationship with God. And what an incredible privilege we have. No more animal sacrifices. But with privileges like that come great responsibilities. Let's look at them. So the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, and since we have a great high priest, verse 21, over the house of God, 
Here it is, starting in verse 22. The writer of Hebrews is going to give us three imperatives, three actions. As a result of this great privilege we have, what should be our response? Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Over my 15 years plus of ministry now uh, serving in this role, I have met people down through the years, and this, this maybe describes you where you are. Your prayer life is non-existent. Your, your reading of Scripture is non-existent, and here's the reason why. You have never really come to the place where you believe that Jesus Christ has forgiven you and set you free. I meet, I meet folks all the time who are still wrestling with whether they are or whether they're not, whether they're born again. Or, and they've been wrestling with it for years. And all the time that they've been wrestling with it, they've not been active in their faith. Every time that they, they go to a service or a funeral or somebody talks about the prayer of salvation, they pray it just to make sure. But they're never really sure. So they live their life in this constant place of doubt. For some, it's, it's because of what you've done in your past. You, you think that there's no way that a holy God could, could forgive me of that. So you're always in this constant state of flux of, of whether I'm going to heaven or whether I'm not. And, and, and here's how that person, well, I hope so. I hope it all works out. And so then all they've got to rely on is their good works. And your good works is not enough. And there have been people down through the years that it's obvious that they love Jesus. It's obvious that their life has been changed. It's obvious they got the fruits of the Spirit all in their life, but yet there's still doubt. And in that doubt, they never serve. And in that doubt, they never talk about Jesus. And in that doubt, because they're never really sure, they never really have that abundant life that Jesus was talking about. And they think that that must be for the pastors and the deacons or somebody else, but it can't be for me because I'm never really sure. It's like standing on quicksand. Does that describe you? Let me ask you a very simple, straightforward question. If I just described you, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross? You're probably going to say yes. Do you believe he died there for you? You're probably going to say yes. You're probably going to say yes. I believe that he bodily resurrected. I believe that the Bible is true. That if you believe the Bible is true, then why don't you live your life as though the Bible is true? You know what the Bible says about you? That if you put your faith in Jesus, you have crossed from death into life. It's time to start living in life. Put that, that, put that Satan, devil, demon out of your head. Because where does doubt come from? It comes from him. Why does he do that? To sideline you. So that you live your whole life never being a steward of what Christ has put in your life. But then there's some other folks who are truly lost. And they've been hoping all these years that they are going to do just enough good works. If even one of those good works is good enough, then Jesus didn't have to go what he went through. If, if Jesus' if Jesus' sacrifice means anything, it means that you don't have what it takes to bridge this gap back to God. Because in your lost state right now, you are still separated from God. And you don't have what it takes to bridge that gap. So if one work, any work, name it, going to church, giving money, being generous, if any of those things is good enough, then Jesus' sacrifice was in vain. It was pointless. Because you found a back door into heaven. But there is no back door. 
He says here that if you've been born again, he's talking to brothers. Remember that? Brothers and sisters, verse 19. He says, if you have been born again, then there's no reason why we shouldn't draw near. There's no reason why we should not be experiencing the abundant life. There's no reason why we shouldn't be praying, and there's no reason that we should not be in God's word, because God has said, come, sit down with me. Learn from me. All the preparations have been made. What in the, what, listen, what, what, what else do you have to run to? Listen to what he says. He said, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance, not because of your good works, because of what Jesus did. Look, he says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You are a daughter or a son. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are a daughter and son of God. Put the doubt out of your mind. If there's a voice, listen, if there's a voice in your head, I want you to hear me clearly. If there is a voice in your head, believer, follower of Jesus, if there's a voice in your head that is condemning you, that is not the voice of your father. Romans 8.1 says, you are now no longer condemned. If you're condemning yourself or you're listening to a voice of condemnation in your head, that is not Jesus speaking to you. Shut that down. How do you shut it down? Get in his word. Get in a fellowship. Get in a small group. Walk out your faith. But let's quit wavering between one or the other. Let's solidly plant our flag, and let's move forward into that abundant life that Jesus tied to give you. And the purpose and the meaning of life. He says, draw near. Next, he says, the next imperative. Look at this. He says, not only do we need to draw near, but we need to hold fast. Look at verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I went to the North Carolina Baptist Convention this past week, and I learned at that convention that there are going to be four to 5,000 churches closing their doors every year. That's what we're already seeing. Churches that were struggling before the pandemic, for many of them, are now closing their doors. For some of them, it was because they departed from the gospel. They departed from the authority of Scripture. For others, it was because of a lack of being able to find leadership or having leaders in the church. It was all kinds of host of reasons. He says here, the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Notice he doesn't say, let us hold fast to our buildings and our campuses. He says, let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Do you know what our confession is? What's your confession? This is exactly why with our new bylaws and all the things that we've changed and that we've been working on for years now, this is exactly why we put that membership covenant in there. Because listen, if we're going to be part of, of, a, of a group of disciples of Jesus who are following Jesus and on mission together, we got to know what the mission is. There's some things we got to agree on. There's some things that we've got to be on the same page about, and you've got to know what's expected of you, and you got to know what to expect from me. So we put it, in, we put it on a document. And what we've said is, is that if you've been a member of Hyde Park for years, prior to July, if you were a member of our church prior to July, what we want you to do is we want you to take that document, we want you to pray over it, we want you to read it, we want you to sign off on it, and what you're saying in that moment is, I am going to be on mission with this family of believers. Now, when you read that covenant, you're going to go, well, I, can't, I can't do all this. Well, guess what? That's not what it's about. 
Because if you're living out that document, well, you, you're, man, you're on fire because there's places on that document that I'm missing. It's not a contract. It's basically saying, I agree that this is the things that Hyde Park is going to be about, and I voluntarily put myself with this family of believers to be on mission together. Now, for those of you who are guests and you're still kind of, should I join, should I not? Well, guess what we've decided to do with you? We love you. But when you come in, to, come in with us, we're going to ask you to sign that document right off the bat. To be a member of our church now. Faith in Christ, baptism by immersion, starting point where we have the discussion about this very thing, sign church covenant. For those of you who have already been members prior to July, we would really, really, really strongly encourage you. I'm going to make a strong case this week, next week, next few weeks about signing on to that so that we're all together. He says, hold fast the confession of our hope. The good news, the power of the word, our confession as the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be confessing the same things. We must be about the same things. Those churches that have failed and are failing right now, some of them is because of division. You know, across our state, we've had a lot of church planting. We call them church splits. We, some people try to fashion it as a church plan, but it's actually a church split. And we've had splits after splits after splits after splits. That's why we have thousands of churches with 10 or 15 each. And well, for a lot of them, they have lost their purpose, lost their goal. What are we to be about? What are we even here for? Why are we even gathering? And some of them have decided there's no point to gather anymore. High part, for us to be able to move forward into the future, we've got to be together, folks. We've got to know what our confession is. We got to know each other. We got to know what your role is in the body of Christ, what my role is, and we move forward together. Notice what else he says. He says, not only let us hold fast without wavering, verse 24, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. You know what my biggest struggle was with in March 2020? The fact that we couldn't gather. I mean, think about it. All the training that I've had at undergrad, master's, and the doctorate program at Southeastern is all based upon the premise of what? Gathering. <laughs> so folks, I'm going to tell you, for about a month and a half there, I was, I was out of my mind. I didn't know what to do. And, and, and at the same time, I'm getting all the questions from you guys, what are we doing? And then I had to look like an idiot and say, I don't know. We're trying, we're trying to figure that out. And I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful for the internet. I'm thankful that we had that, that bridge in there to where we could, we could still kind of do ministry, but through an online format. Now, before I get to this point, I had to spend some extra time in prayer this week because I want to be very clear in what I'm about to say. And I know that we've got an audience watching online this morning. I want you to hear me very clearly. I love you, and I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad that you're part of this fellowship through technology. But I also want you to hear this statement. I want you to hear it very clearly. And I say it out of love. Nothing can take the place of gathering in person. If I never have to have a Zoom meeting the rest of my life, I'll be fine. But what this text is based upon and what the Old Testament system of gathering was based upon was togetherness. 
The whole idea of koinonia, the whole idea of fellowship is the idea that we're together. Notice this, it's kind of a prerequisite here. He says that we are to gather and stir up one another to love and good works. I have not figured out a way to do that through an online connection yet. And while I am grateful that we've got that opportunity, and I'm grateful that we've got people all over the country watching us, if you're in Robinson County, if you're within driving distance of us, and you don't have any health problems, and you don't have any issues that would prevent you from coming here, because if that is your situation, you've got health problems, COVID could be devastating you, listen, you keep tuning in with us, and we'll keep ministering to you. But if that doesn't fit you, if that's not the category you're in, you need to be around other people who are following Jesus. I have, I have wondered for a long time when I needed to say that. When was the right time to say it? I think now's the right time to say it. Stir up one another for good works. Notice this, verse 25. He says, not neglecting to meet together. Now, when I was growing up in the church I grew up in, that verse was used <laughs> kind of in a legalistic way. And here's how I heard it growing up as a kid. You had to be there every time the doors was open. And man, those doors were open a lot. A lot. That's not what this verse is teaching. What this verse is teaching is that we need to be involved in the life of the church. Because it's in the life of the church that you find life. Isn't it interesting? I find this amazing. Isn't it amazing that at the very point in time when we all needed encouragement, at the very point in time we needed somebody to talk to, at the very point in time where we needed somebody alongside of us, encouraging us and helping us, was at the same moment the whole entire state shut down. Let me tell you what the fruit of that has been. Now listen, I get it. We had to protect. We had to do what we needed to do. Not questioning that. What I'm saying is, is right now today, the suicide rate in Robinson County is as high as it's ever been. The alcoholism rate is the highest it's ever been. Drug addictions are the highest they've ever been. Talk to any of our police officers in this fellowship. Some of them are out the side today doing security detail. Ask any of them, hey, have you seen more domestic dispute? Have you seen more fighting in marriages? Have you seen more of that? They will tell you it is astronomical. If you can see the graph, it's something like this. From pre-March 2020 till now. Why do you think that is? Isolation. Depression. I tell you, being alone. Being alone for long periods of time. God didn't create you for that. And, and God gave the nation of Israel those festival days to bring them together. God has given us the church to bring us together because whether you realize it or not, you need it. I need it. We need to see each other eyeball to eyeball, not through a computer screen. We need to be able to hug one another. We need to be able to shake hands. We need to be able to see each other's smiles. We, we need that because that's what we're created for. We're, we're created to be communal, and the church is where that happens. Now, notice this. He says, not neglecting to meet the gun together, as is the habit. I want you to focus in on that word habit for just a moment. Because here's, here's what I have learned over the last, I don't know, 12 months. There are families in our church that have significant health issues in their family and they have got to be careful. And I want them to be careful. And I want them to watch online, and I want them to connect with us any way they can, and we will minister any way we can at a distance or however. 
We're going to continue to do that. But you, you, you want to know what the majority, look around you. There are people that you used to be in a small group with that you hadn't seen in a year. Look around. There's some people that you, that you used to sit with that you, you don't see them anymore. You had not seen them for a long time. Well, I've been trying to follow up with a lot of those folks because they're part of our flock. Here's what I'm hearing way more, way more than just the medical side. Here's what I'm hearing. Well, pastor, you know, my number comes up on their phone. And you can almost hear it when they answer the phone. Well, you know, preacher, it's good to talk to you. You can almost hear the anxiety. And I'm, I'm not calling to beat them down. I'm just calling to let them know, hey, is there anything I can do for you? And here's where the conversation goes, almost without me even saying anything. Here's what's said. Well, Pastor, you know, we've just gotten out of the habit. We've gotten out of the habit. That's why we're not there. Oh, no, we, we're not having any issues with COVID. It's just... We've started doing other things on Sunday. Appreciate that honesty. But here's the question. When are you going to get back in the habit? Because here's the thing. Jesus Christ died on a cross, tore the veil, for us to have the privilege to commune with God. So as believers and followers of Jesus, it is built into us to be gathered at a location. That's, that's who we are. That's what we are, the church, the body, gathering at a location, 301 North Roberts. That's the location. The church are the people who make up this fellowship. But it comes down to habits. And then the writer of Hebrews closes us here, and it's where I'm going to close. He says, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In your Bible, let me ask you a question. Is that the day? Is the word day capitalized? If it is, shake your head. Look on your app. Yep, it's capitalized, isn't it? You know why it's capitalized? Because it's talking about a very specific day. It's talking about the day when Jesus comes back. Comes back for his church. The writer of Hebrews says we need to be gathering more. We need to be focused more on the body, more on encouraging, more on gathering, more on connecting. Why? Because there's a day approaching when, the, when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to call his bride. And I don't want to be offering excuses and habits as to why I've been disconnected for the last four or five years. I, I don't want to be in that moment where I'm standing before Jesus going, you know what? I, I just decided I had some better things to do on Sunday. We don't want you here in this building seven days a week. But what we do want is you to gather here, find some encouragement, find some strengthening, find some love, find some connectivity with other people. We want to equip you and send you out because we're a family of Jesus followers who are on mission together. We want to equip you and send you out. And then for some of you, you've never put your faith in Jesus. So what better place and what better time to do it than right now? I still believe, and I will go to my grave believing, that the local church is the greatest organism on the face of the earth. Why? Not because of our buildings, but because of you and the love and the encouragement that we share together. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have the local body. I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I would navigate this best. I don't know how I would get through this world. Where else are you finding that kind of encouragement, and where else are you finding that kind of love? Not out in the world. So those of you online and those of you here, it is time today, now is the time 
for us to commit to gathering and being together and doing the work that God Christ has given us to do. No more excuses. Today's the day. Father in heaven, you've been so good to us that you would offer us, offer to us the opportunity to even be in your presence. That's more than my mind can comprehend. But yet, that's exactly what you accomplished through Jesus, that one sacrifice for us all. And because, Father, you have set me apart and you've set these folks apart, these who've put their faith in you, you've set them apart. We are part of the body of Christ. Nothing in this world will ever give us the peace and the joy and the purpose and the meaning apart from the body of Christ. From gathering corporately to stir one another up to love and good works. Father, that's all an outworking of the great gift that you've given us. With that great gift comes great responsibility. So Father, I pray that for every believer in this room, we would recognize the great gift we've been given and the great responsibility that we have. For some in this room, they still don't know where they stand. Father, speak to them today. Before they leave here, that they could find that assurance. We love you, Father. We thank you for that great gift that you've given us. And to consider that right now in this very moment, we are in your presence. Not because you live in this building, but because you live in our hearts. You are worthy to be praised and honored and exalted for this great work that you've accomplished. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.